Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and uh, this lecture is entitled Post-Processing Workflow and Interpretation. And in case you wonder how I got that title, at RSNA for the past three years I've been involved in a refresher course called Fast and Reliable CTN Geography, Strategies for Technique Optimization. And in that uh, refresher course there were three speakers, Matthias Prokof, Maren Posnick, and myself. And uh, Matthias spoke about acquisition optimization and Dr. Posniak spoke about contrast media optimization. And I spoke about post-processing workflow and interpretation. And that's what I'm going to speak to you about this morning. If you look at um, everything we do in terms of CT, we always comment that technology is super critical. And depending what scanner you have and whether it's 1664, 256, dual source, whatever the scanner, in a sense, that's going to define what applications you will be successfully able to perform in your scanner. Obviously, you're not going to do great cardiac uh, studies on a 16-slice scanner. And with dual source, you won't need beta blockers, and you'll do a great job. But in saying that, that's only part of the story. Because even with the best of scanners, really your workflow is going to determine specifically how successful you're going to be. And so things you need to think about. What are the applications that you're going to perform? Are you going to do renal donors, aneurysm evaluation, be it aortic or coronaries or runoff studies or pancreatic tumor staging? Those are just some examples. Each of those requires a different set of workflow, both in terms of patient preparation, both in terms of data acquisition, and of course, in terms of post-processing. And we're going to speak more in generalities today, but understanding that the workflow will determine how successful you're going to be in your CT program. And we also comment before that, you know, workflow is really not just when you're scanning the patient for that 10 seconds, but workflow begins with scheduling the right patient for the right study at the right time and ends with you transferring that information to the referring physician to help guide patient management and decision making. And again, if anything falls apart at any of those steps, things are just not going to be successful. And here's just a typical list of workflow. And again, as I mentioned, I'm going to focus on the last part, this post-processing workflow and interpretation. So several things. Uh, one of the things I looked at, of course, is, and this answer will vary depending on your site, is who's going to do the post-processing of data? Where is it done? Who has access to the technology? So let's answer the first question, who does it? Four choices, radiologists, technologists, a dedicated 3D tech, maybe in a 3D lab, or maybe even the referring physician. Now, there are many different ways, and as you know that we do it with the radiologist-driven uh, uh, post-processing, although our technologists know how to do it, but it's really a radiologist-driven process because, you know, we always felt that interpretation is part of the entire process of post-processing. However, if you do the technologist-driven model, there's several different ways of doing it. One is the technologist prepares 3D images for the radiologist to read, and that's the images they do indeed read. Other situations, the technologists more focus on certain measurement type studies like stent grafts or calcium scoring, and uh, things where you can get very reproducible results. Uh, we've shown in the past, we wrote an article, that technologists can indeed do calcium scoring and do it very accurately and do it as same as a radiologist once they're trained. Now, there's lots been written about technologists versus radiologists. Here's something I read in one of the throwaways, and I love this quote. 
There is no doubt that the heavy lifting at the 3D workstation will be done by technologists. It's not to say that physicians will play no role in the process, but that role will be supervisory capacity, responsible for setting protocols and troubleshooting individual cases when needed. And the author goes along to say that if CT and advanced processing were as easy and intuitive as we've been told, we'd have no need to discuss workflow management. Our work would flow with no management at all. Thank you very much. Well, I don't know who this uh, R. Folk is, and I'm sure he's a very smart guy, but that is the dumbest thing I've read amongst the many dumb things I read on a daily basis. Our work would flow with no management at all. We're not talking about a river running downstream. We're talking about processing. We're talking about patient care. And patient care is always going to require hands-on management. And the workflow will constantly change depending on applications and depending on technology. So let's forget that. The answer is radiologists and technologists will always be involved in the process. What we're talking about is who does certain parts of the job. Now, I'm going to tell you that it's not just, you know, thinking about technologists. It's also radiologists doing post-processing. If someone else does a post-processing for you, if you don't do it yourself, you really kind of put yourself in a box. You're only going to see what that other person saw. You're only going to see what they thought they saw. You will not see what they did not see. And you may see things that were not really there, but seem to be there because they filmed it in a certain way. So when you do it, when someone else does it for you, it's substantially different. And if someone else does a post-processing, I'm just not sure you should be that confident in what you're reading. You better beware of what lies in darkness. Because I know, having done about 1 trillion 3D studies, that in most cases I can create false findings or I can hide critical findings. And here's just some examples. Here's a type uh, B dissection, past left subclavian, volume rendered. But if I showed you the MIP, Look where the section seems to begin, mid-descending thoracic aorta. It's a significant difference. And if you're looking at progression of disease, depending on how you image it, you can make all sorts of bad assumptions. Or in this case, uh, where you're looking at the patient's liver mass, well, what is that? You want to go through a differential of vascular liver masses? I gave you a lecture on that. You can do that. But guess what? You're not looking at the liver. What you're really looking at, the base of the heart, and just when someone did that MIP image, they cut it in a way that it really did look like a uh, liver mass. So again, you indeed want to be very careful. Or in this case, look at the patient's portal vein. Patient has cirrhosis and varices and portal hypertension. That's easy. That's MIP imaging. But look at the coronal in that patient. There's clot in the portal vein going into the SMV, going into the splenic vein. And you can see that on the coronals. There's also a small hepatoma in the cirrhotic liver. And if you go to volume rendering, look how nicely you see the thrombus. But remember, we explained that MIP is a projection technique. And if you use the MIP, you would read this as a normal study in terms of portal vein thrombosis. That's a terrible error. So again, if you did it yourself and you did it the right way, you would hit a home run. If not, you could have significant problems. Or even accentuating findings. Look at the patient's right intercubital fossa. SVC occlusion, collaterals, chest wall. But look when I simply change the lighting model. Look how I'm able to show what's in the patient's axilla. Just a very, very nice visualization. Now you see the patient's catheter. You didn't see it before. So again, it indeed becomes very critical. Or in this example, volume rendering versus MIP. 
uh, renal donor, two renal arteries. MIP volume rendering show that. Remember I explained to you how MIP is a projection technique, so when you look at the vein, the vein appears to be retroaortic. That is a significant problem. It's really in a classic location. So you could make significant errors simply by uh, doing this sort of processing. And here's another example. Look at this beautiful case of varices, recanalization of the umbilical vein. Here's a MIP image. It's hard to get the relationships to the liver. Is it in the liver, behind the liver, in front of the liver? But of course, with volume rendering, you could see it on the surface of the liver going upward. You could see how it comes from the hilum of the liver. Just incredibly nice visualization. And here is the volume and MIP together. Or in this example, now I'm sure you're not going to have this error, but look at these widespread liver meds, recurrent pancreatic cancer. But if you would look at that with a MIP image, you see the hepatic veins and portal vein very nicely, but you don't see all of those liver metastases. So again, uh, you would see it on volume rendering, but again, you need to be very, very careful. And that's my point. There's so much information in a CT. It's so easy to make a terrible mistake. You indeed need to be very careful. And unless you're hands-on, you can create all sorts of problems. So you really need to be hands-on in the situation. Again, technologies are critical, uh, obviously, that are key to our success. But you need to be hands-on. And here's just an article which showed this point. 18 of 27 uh, transitional cell carcinomas were seen on CT urography, which means they missed nine. When they went back retrospectively and reviewed them, they picked up six of those nine. But in this article, the images were created independently by a technologist at a workstation. So the people were not reading it interactively. Again, this becomes very, very critical. Our concept has always been you need real-time rendering. Now, maybe in the past it didn't make sense. You didn't have those capabilities. But now it's an active and interactive process. Whether you're on a fixed workstation, one of the new upcoming PAC systems, or a thin client, this indeed is critical. You need to do the radi you need to be able to do the process. So the radiologist-driven model is kind of simple. You do the interactive 3D rendering, review the study, you film the cri critical images, and you dictate it. It's a single event. It's a one-time uh, process. Now, you can argue, does the radiologist need to do 3D on all studies or only select studies? That's a different argument. But when you're going to do it, you got to do it. And so you can see, even in this case with cardiac, you can see the images, uh, very nice example of MIP, sliding MIPS, how you're able to look at the right coronary, you look at the left coronary. We look at it from several different perspectives. Here's another view of that same patient. But you can see the interactivity actually speeds up the process. We're able to look at the vessels and whether it's MIP or it's volume rendering, it's the same process. Everything is really interactive. Now, I did read one article that was published in the last couple of months, and it was an interesting article, and it had some good quotes, and it's worthwhile reading. It's an AJR, and here's just some of the quotes they had. Diagnostic confidence and the accuracy of interpretation of volume CT images have increased with improvements in post-processing techniques. Definitely agree there. And the evidence in the literature supports the reporting of volume CT data from thin images with the use of techniques such as MPR, MIP, and volume rendering as additional tools to increase diagnostic confidence and sensitivity. Agree 100%. And remember, we always speak about doing all these things interactively. And volume CT reporting allows radiologists to produce a few images of the diagnosed pathologic condition in the best orientation and with the most appropriate post-processing methods for referring physicians. 
Again, we've written many articles addressing that subject that is not just for the radiologist, it's for the referring physician who is going to manage the patient, whether it's pancreatic cancer surgery, whether it's aortic dissection, whether it's stent placement, for just a few examples. And the final comment, the change in reporting techniques from film to manipulation of CT volume data sets requires radiologists to have access to volume reporting stations and the necessary training, and that this access may be the rate-limiting step for improvement in the diagnostic accuracy of CT by use of volume reporting and will only be overcome by the action of radiologists. And indeed, that's probably where we're sitting now. So it's an issue of availability, it's an issue of training, and again, I think these are truly issues. I'm, I'm not going to argue that point. And uh, at Hopkins, we do run 3D training courses. I think it's April 11th to 13th in Las Vegas this year. That's 2008. And then in Baltimore in October. So you can come to those courses and learn a whole bunch of stuff. But again, it's something that's just a transition. And transitions are always difficult. But, you know, the uh, die is cast. Now, another question to ask on what system is a post-processing done and I think that's continuing to evolve. Basically, the answer is all of these. But, of course, each have advantages and potentially disadvantages. Workstations are typically ideal. They have the most software, the most capable computers. But the problem with the workstation, of course, single user, single workstation. And we've had that model, and I think it works very well. It's very efficient. But we also know that you need to have workstations near every scanner because you need to be able to create those diagnoses very quickly. But then in reality, you need to have this 3D capabilities at every reading station. So we've gone from a central lab, which we keep, to workstations, to availability everywhere. And availability everywhere is this whole process now of this thin client or client-server model where you have one uh, computer which is then accessed by many users. And it's a very interesting model because what the thin client does, it really allows a uh, lowering of the cost per seat because some of these client servers can you have 20 users at the same time, then you're spending a couple hundred K for a system, but then it's 10 to 15 K per user. So when you ask the question, what's a client server model? Client server is a computing architecture which separates a client from a server and is almost always implemented over a computer network each client or server connected to a network can also be referred to as a node. So that's a description. And again, as I mentioned, there's the biggest advantage is availability anywhere, over the web, at home, in any office, in any clinic, in the surgical suites. It's availability everywhere and everywhere and anywhere. And that is the big impact in clinical practice. It's this availability. So it's something that uh, indeed is something that we've all been working on for a while. Uh, it's something that I think is the future. There's no doubt that uh, there won't be workstations, there won't be PAC systems, there won't be thin clients. There'll be a single system that has all capabilities uh, from the, at the reading level. So again, um, everyone's going to have access to information. So that indeed becomes very critical, and that's something, of course, you need to get used to. And... Uh, that's radiologists, referring docs, treating physicians, residents, fellows, and medical students. Everybody will have access. So maybe what to do is maybe we want to stop at this point, and I think that's kind of a good, good place to stop. And let's pick it up a little bit later. Thanks very much.